while you're getting there, let me read a quote from St. Augustine. We were made for you, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Now, I really want you to hear that. I'm going to leave it up on that screen for a, a few minutes. It's going to be left up there for a few minutes. I want you to really contemplate that for a minute. And let me remind you from last week when we began the series that Solomon, many believe, wrote this. And the name Ecclesiastes is actually a Greek word that's found in the Old Testament. Very interesting. And the name Ecclesiastes is made from or comes from the root word ecclesia, which is church. So what we have here is when you add the eastes part of ecclesi, what you get is the preacher. That's what it means. It's one who's preaching to the people of God. And so he's preaching not only to the people of God, Israel at that time, he's preaching to the nations. So what we have here is a collection of sermons from the wisest man that ever lived before Christ. And what he says is incredibly relevant for us today. And throughout his sermons, he's going to declare that there is no gain in anything under the sun. Now, we don't talk like that. If you're talking about under the sun, you're likely going to the beach. But when we dis disconnect life from God, that's what it means to live under the sun, then life is vanity. That word means brief means thin, like a shadow, like a mist. It's going to be lacking any ability to satisfy your soul. So what Solomon is going to say, this is his main point. We covered his introduction last week. His main point is that everything under the sun, when it's disconnected from God, will be brief, it will be vain, it will be like a shadow that's passing, like a mist that's evaporating, like your breath on a cold morning, that you see the plume of vapor and then it's gone before you know it. Now I want you to look at verse 13 because this is going to really get us going. This is going to set the tone of everything we're going to talk about in our passage today. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Now, I don't know what translation you have. That was the ESV. But did you underline that if you have the ESV? That God has given to the children of man. God has given us something that produces an unhappy business. See, Adam and Eve's sin brought God's judgment, and it brought that judgment on everything under the sun, everything on this earth, including humanity, including creation. And that judgment is irreversible with human effort. Look at verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. This is Solomon saying, listen, God is the one who put this unhappy business. He put this judgment. He put this curse on everything under the sun, and if you're going to live disconnected from him, you're not going to be able to straighten it out. You're not going to be able to count it. You're not going to find gain for your soul. But our educators, on every level, and our politicians disagree. Can you hear this for a moment? Solomon knows people are going to disagree with that statement. He knows. 
He knows they're going to disagree that vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He knows that there is a rebuttal coming. There's an argument forming in the mind. And so he wants to know if he's really going to believe this, if he's going to preach this, then he wants to know if it's true. He wants to know if it's really vain. He's going to be asking this question throughout Ecclesiastes. Is it really not possible to find gainful satisfaction and happiness with what is under the sun? That's the question that is in his mind. He's tethered to that. So he begins a series of experiments, several of them. He's going to apply, verse 17, my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. See, he's going to do all these experiments, and he's going to see if this crooked life can be made straight by human effort. If there's something under the sun that can find gain for him, happiness, satisfaction, somehow, somewhere. He's going to conduct them, look at verse 13, this is absolutely critical. He's going to conduct them by wisdom. Look at verse, verse 3 of chapter 2, his heart is still guiding him with wisdom. Look at verse 9 of chapter 2, my wisdom remained with me. He's not abandoning God, he's not like the prodigal son going headlong into the world. He's going into the world to experiment, to find maybe there's some way that you can find gain under the sun other than through God. I'm going to find out. He's going to try three things. I'm going to break apart the first one because it's going to be incredibly relevant for us. Here's his first experiment. It's the experiment with pleasure. Now we're in chapter 2. Can you read with me in verse 1? I said in my heart, Solomon's preaching, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. He's speaking to himself. But behold, this also was vanity. He's going to test his heart. He's going to see if pleasure can bring gain, if it can bring satisfaction, if it can bring happiness. And he's going to start with the first pleasure, comedy, laughter. Verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? He's now looking at laughter. He's going to go headlong into a life of cheer, a life of happiness, a life of, of, of going to comedy clubs if it was relevant to this day. It seems, by the way, a very good attempt. You got a lot of research that tells you there's a really good amount of benefit in laughter. Well, you've got endocrinologists who tell us that laughter will boost your immunity, it will lower your stress levels, it will improve your mood, it will, that's what psychologists tell you, it's going to add joy to your life, it's going to ease anxiety. You've got sociologists who tell you that it will strengthen relationships, it will attract others to you, it will help you diffuse conflict in stressful situations. So laughter is really good. In fact, Proverbs 17, this was written by Solomon. A, good, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Listen, be around somebody that's depressed. Look at their life. There's no life in them after a while. But a joyful heart could be very good medicine. So he does. He, he hits comedy clubs, put it in today's language. He watches Scott Sterling videos, you ever seen those? Am I the only one? 
Got to get on YouTube. You're missing some of the best parts on there. Bad lip reading in the NFL. I mean, come on. There's a lot of really funny stuff out there. But then he discovers Proverbs 14, even in laughter, the heart may ache. Listen, you could be laughing. You could be at a comedy club. You can have chuckles coming out of you, and your heart is breaking inwardly. Not even funny man Robin Williams could outrun his grief and sadness. Listen, the movie's going to end. The club comedian's going to take his bow. And then it's back to real life where... Proverbs 14, the end of joy is grief. It was fun, made me forget for a while, but it was temporary, brief. Nothing in my life ultimately changed. That pleasure fails. So he turns to his next pleasure, drinking. Verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart's still guiding me with wisdom. So let me take a little bit of a time out for you because it's really absolutely clear when I'm going through this. I think you're going to find out just how clear it is. This is really what Solomon's doing. He's got three main experiments that he's going to try. And that first one that we're looking at now, pleasure, there's six or seven of them that he's going to give a whirl. He's going to see maybe this will bring me the satisfaction. Maybe this will fill up my soul. Will drinking do it? Well, he's not tumbling headlong into mindless drunkardness. His wisdom stays with him. He's testing to see if alcohol can satisfy. So he's hitting the party scene. He's going to the craft beer festivals and the Poconos. He's going on drinking binges. None of them, however, are filling the void. In fact, it deepens the pit because after the hangover, well, life's struggles are still hanging over your head. You ever heard of a kegerator? I've got two good friends that have them. They enjoy them. You get drunk. You forget a few hours what's going on in your life, but the morning comes, the emptiness is still there. So he quickly files drinking, verse 11, under a vanity and a striving after wind. So here he goes with his third pleasure. I'm going to try money. I'm going to try possessions. I'm going to make Amazon my number one endeavor. I bought male and female slaves. I do want to bring out, though, here, he didn't capture them. He paid money for them. And slavery although terrible in every age, was not like the slavery of America. This was usually when you bought a slave, it was usually in a way that would allow them to pay off and earn off the debt. And once they paid it off, they went back to free. They actually usually owned their own land and then did extra work for their owner until the debt was paid off. That's usually, most often, biblical slavery. I bought male and female slaves, and I had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been, been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. That was 7 and 8 of chapter 2. He had a massive workforce. He had a huge company. His wealth was greater than any other king in Israel. He made, according to 2 Chronicles 9, 27, he made silver as common as stone. Listen, just factor his gold earnings for a moment. I'll put it in today's currency prices. Based on this past Thursday's price of gold, 
Equivalent to American dollars annually, Solomon earned in gold alone 965 million U.S. dollars. That's almost a trillion. Pretty bright pastor, aren't I? He had a fleet of ships. He possessed exotic animals, monkeys and apes. He had precious artifacts. Solomon honestly could tell Jeff is it Bezos from Amazon? Your money's not going to fill your soul. He's really one of the few people that's in a position to tell him that. Why? Because you're going to die. And he's going to tell you later, you've got to leave it to the man who will come after you. This is why it won't satisfy. It's the same for each one of us. I know you get in your mind, I need to make more money things that we'd be able to do, the things I'd be able to buy, it's going to make me so happy. Listen, I'm telling you from experience, it's utterly impossible for anything under this sun to fill your soul with happiness that endures. It cannot do it. So he moves to music, his fourth pleasure. I got singers, verse 8, both men and women. He bought his own band, and unlike most music groups of his day, he had women in it as well. That was really avant-garde. This was really modern for him for that day and age. And he thought that music might soothe his soul. So every chariot ride, he had Spotify churning out the latest beats. He walked around his palace with his home theater dialed into 99.9 The Hawk. He had on his treadmill Beats headphones, I'm sure, piping in NF's latest hit song. He's a Christian rap artist that's on the top 100 right now. Really good. He had Dobie Gray's mega hit, Drift Away, on repeat. Remember those? I want you to hear these lyrics now with Ecclesiastes in mind. Beginning to think that I'm wasting time. I don't understand the things I do the world outside looks so unkind, so I'm counting on you, music, to carry me through. Oh, give me the beat, boys, and free my soul. I want to get lost in your rock and roll and drift away. That's called worship. Some of you are singing it right now. You've totally tuned out in my sermon. <laughs> this is called worship. This is incredibly relevant right now in our culture that music will fill your soul. So when your latest, when your greatest and most favorite artist drops the latest album, and you download that, and you absolutely love it, is it any surprise that in about three months, all of a sudden you're looking for the next one? Maybe sooner. Well, this is what Solomon is discovering with these experiments. All of these, laughter, drink, Money, possessions, music, none of them keep him satisfied. They might work for a little bit. They bring a bling of, of a, a pleasure into his life, but it dries up. And this is what he's discovering. Everything under the sun, everything is short-term. That's what it means to be vanity. So he goes to sex. And many concubines, verse 8, the delight of the sons of man, asked Wilt Chamberlain, Basketball player, best-selling writer Ernest Hemingway or Algebus Huxley and thousands of others. Will sex fill your soul? Two of the three killed themselves that I mentioned. And they pursued hedonistic pleasure. Sex is the pleasure above all pleasures that our culture moves toward. 
thinking it's going to fill your soul, it's going to elevate you to heights of happiness. Listen, this is what is happening in the porn industry. It wants you to think that sex is going to make you satisfied. Did you know that it earns the porn industry $97 billion annually? Did you know that 64% of young people, ages 13 through 24, actively are looking at porn weekly? I think that's underreported. In 2016, 4.6 billion hours of porn were viewed on the world's largest porn site. So let me ask you, do you have a problem with porn? I'm going to tell you, if we showed a video from every single one of us on that screen right now of everything your eyes looked at in the last month and everything your, uh, your mind thought of the last month and every one of us saw each of ours, our life portrayed in that video, you would go running out of here and I would be right in the pack with you. Solomon had 700 wives, 1 Kings 11, who were princesses and 300 concubines. Look what happened. His wives turned away his heart. Sexual pleasure ruined his life, turned him away from God, and left him with a failed experiment. One more under pleasure. He's going to give it a try. Fame. Verse 9, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Will my fame fill my heart? That's the question he's going to ask. My youngest son asked me this last week if I've ever met any famous person. You know what? I can't remember. I honestly cannot remember if I have. You know, we think if our name is on the marquee or on a best-selling book's cover jacket or on the back of a jersey, that we'd be happy. If we're up in the lights, we're going to be satisfied. But the world's kings and queens visited Solomon just to hear his wisdom, to see what he had done. And still, he calls his fame a vanity and a striving after the wind. It cannot fill your soul. It failed. He gives up putting confidence in pleasure. That experiment proved vanity of vanities. He's going to move to his next experiment. This one's with morality. Verse 12, chapter 2. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. And you might be wondering, well, why am I entitling this point morality? Because the wisdom here in this verse is not the deep spiritual understanding that comes from the fear of the Lord. That's biblical wisdom. And this wisdom is moral, practical advice, the kind that you get from Dr. Phil and Mark Twain and Irma Bombeck. This, this is the wisdom that is moralism, that gives you very good, pithy advice. And he contrasts it with madness and folly in that verse. And he draws two conclusions. It's better to live a morally positive life than it is to live a foolish one. But his second conclusion is there's an event coming to both the wise and the fool, and that event is called death. They're both going to die. See, Solomon had meditated deeply on life. He sought to harness his desires for good. He contemplated the mysteries of life, all in the hopes to bring himself 
gain and happiness and satisfaction, but his conclusion from this experiment is that if one lives life under the sun, looking to find gain in this world only, what does it matter if you live foolishly or wise? Nobody's going to remember you. You're going to die and you're going to fade from their memory. Sherry Isley from our church, she goes to the March Street campus. Her first husband died when her oldest child was five years old. After the sermon last week, Sherry came up and gave me permission to share this, that when Douglas, two years after his father died at seven years old, Douglas came to her, and he was struggling. And she said to him, Doug, what's wrong? And, she, he, and he said to his mom, Mom, my memories of dad are fading. That's pretty powerful for a seven-year-old, isn't it? That's going to happen when I die. That's going to happen when you die. You're not going to be remembered very long. That's not prone to driving you to despair. That is really powerful to drive you to a better life. Fame is not going to give it to you. So when you catch yourself daydreaming that you're up on stage and thousands of fans are watching you, let me tell you, you're buying a lie that will not fill you. It cannot make your life full of gain. Not if it's disconnected to God. We're all going to experience death, the moral as well as the immoral. It is really the great leveler. Of all people, Solomon says in verse 15, then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool, it's going to happen to me. Why then have I been so very wise? For of the wise, in other words, why have I been so careful to pursue moral right living? For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. You know, one of the best things that you can learn to do, especially as a young person, is keep the day of your death in mind. Now, some of you, when you're young, you have no concept of that. I, I get that. I never did either. I do now at 51 years old. That day is really planted in my mind. I know I'm not going to be here forever. So how am I living it's really terribly hard when you're young to keep that day in mind, but there's going to be wisdom that you're going to find later in the book of Ecclesiastes when you remember that day will come for you, that day will come for me, will come from everybody. So how do you live now? Are you connected to God, the life above the life under the sun? It's not a morbid thought. It's a freeing thought. All the wisdom in the world is useless if you do not learn that life under the sun is not all there is. Well, that experiment failed as well. So Solomon's going to move to his third and final experiment. This one, listen, I'm going to tell you, some of you guys and ladies, this one's going to connect, I think, pretty deeply to you. It's experiment with work. Ecclesiastes, you might be confused, by the way, and this is one of the things that makes Ecclesiastes so incredibly difficult to study. Because it's not laid out, I hope you hear this, it's not laid out in a linear, sequential approach. You know, where everything builds on top of what was previously said. It's using a Hebrew style of writing called spiraling. 
meaning that it often goes in circles and you find yourself three chapters later right back to three chapters before, but a little bit deeper, a little bit closer to his main point in the end of the book. And this is what he's going to be doing with this one. He's spiraling. He's going to return again to a previous thought. His previous thought was verse 4. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So he designs public works. His name is on bridges. It's on national parks. It's on forests. And he's about to conclude that even though I've done all of this, this work, I've, I've made all of these accomplishments, still there's something missing in me. There's an emptiness in me. It won't fill me. I really thought this one might do it, Solomon says, because this one's going to bless a lot of people. So let me ask you a question. You have to be honest, even if it provokes a bit of a conviction. How much are you working in your life? 55, 60, 70? When you go on vacation, are you taking your laptop with you? Are you still connected to the office? Your coworkers can get you in any moment, but this is your family time. Now nah, they've got to understand. Work is pressing. I have to answer these phone calls. No, you don't. That tells you your work is an idol. That it's trying to fill something in you that it cannot ever fill. It's gain for your soul that you're seeking. And when you work 60, 70, trying to get that promotion, for what? The corporate ladder is going to top out before you find your satisfaction. You won't get there from work. Solomon found pleasure in his work. Don't misunderstand. I mean, a lot of us do. Look at verse 10. I found pleasure in my work. But then he all of a sudden began to consider what death is going to do to him. In verse 18, he's spiraling. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. I hate all this work, all, this endeavor, all these endeavors. Why? Seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. I'm going to die. And somebody's going to take my place at the office. They're not going to remember me. Even if my name gets on the wall, they're going to pretty much become out of tune to it. They won't even notice it anymore. What did I put all of this effort into the work for what? So how can work be enjoyable knowing that I'm going to die? No one will remember me. I'm going to be replaced. How can I make it enjoyable? Well, you've got to connect it to the life above, and we're going to learn to do that in this book. See, are you seeing the thread of vanity that weaves through the quest for meaning and happiness? All your strength, all your money, all your effort that you're spending on pleasure, all your moral living, all your hours at work, why? You're going to die. Not any of it will go with you to the next life. It cannot benefit you there unless. And with that one word, unless... All of a sudden, that little rheostat dial in your heart begins to brighten. It gets to turn, and you get some hope. Unless what? Verse 24. This is the answer. 
There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink. I'm going to put it in my word and be merry. Eat and drink and find enjoyment in his work and his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? You see, listen, what you should be getting from that is God wants you happy. God doesn't want you to be joyless. God is supremely happy. He's incredibly full of joy to the perfect degree. He wants his children happy, even here under the sun, on this earth. And he's made a way for you to find that happiness now. It is possible, but only in a relationship with God. For apart from him, look what it says, apart from him, who can have enjoyment? Solomon's saying, listen, if you're going to disconnect from God, and you're going to live this life under the sun, and you're going to go towards pleasure, and you're going to go for all of this work, and you're going to go for all of these things like morality that you think is going to fill your soul, if you're dis disconnected from God, you're not going to find satisfaction. The heart of an unbelieving sinner is not capable of housing God's gifts. The soul, listen, I'm going to tell you why. The soul, it's not that it's just too small, though it is. It is hardware built for a different software. It cannot communicate. See, a person must be a new creation. They've got to be equipped to experience pleasure without beginning to worship that pleasure. The recreating power to bring you a new heart is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's the only way to get it. You can't buy it. You can't get a degree, your third PhD, and get it. You don't get a new heart by mastering the meaning of life and writing top-selling books about it. The recreating power of a heart is the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. It's the cross and the resurrection, and it removes the barrier of sin between you and me and God, and it takes away the curse that was laid on us all the way back from Adam and Eve, and it makes us alive with power and hope and joy. For the Christian, then, life under the sun explodes with meaning and satisfaction. The soul lungs of a child of God choke on the air under the sun. It chokes on its pleasures and its pursuits. You swallow it, and you want to vomit it back up. If you do manage to keep it down, you find yourself the next day incredibly empty, incredibly guilty, incredibly convicted. Listen, if you've had sex before marriage, if you've had sex outside of marriage, if you've struggled with porn, if you've struggled with addiction on any level, you know what I'm talking about. You might try to see if it gains satisfaction for your soul, but you feel worse. See, God gives his children the ability to experience joy in work, true satisfaction and pleasure, joy in suffering, calm even in storms. You know, this last week was a pretty difficult week for me. We had a lot of big decisions going on in the church. Got a very, very cutting, very hard email personally directed at me. That's all right. That stuff happens. Not the end of the world, but I'm going to tell you, you know, you know what I'm telling you. In, inwardly, immediately, my heart full of agitation. What did I do? 
I haven't always been able to do this, but the Lord's teaching me. you got to go to prayer. After a few minutes of that angst and I'm wrestling with it, the Spirit of God begins to exert His will, and all of a sudden my mind begins to remember that God is in control, God is sovereign, and I'm called to love even this person who sent that email. And I can ask for peace, and it can surpass all understanding. I'm going to tell you what happened. Immediately, calm began flowing like warmth through my heart. I began praying blessing for that person. I slept great that night. I woke up in peace, content with whatever comes in this decision. Listen, you find out your job is changing and you get angry. They're forcing a new position on you and you hate it. You feel the injustice of it. So what do you do, Christian? You pray and you receive from God his joy and you take pleasure that God is your heavenly father. He has given you this work to do. Even in this change, God can bring good from it and he will be with you through every day of that job. And your death is approaching. You might as well just settle accounts with it. And the statistic that the number one emotion that I deal with, with people who are dying, is regrets. And that will not be true of you, Christian, for you stopped living for what is under the sun years before. If you followed the advice of Ecclesiastes and you experienced the power of the gospel. You gave up trying to find meaning under the sun. You turned to God, and when you see him face to face, you will be where you were always meant to be, home. See, there is power in this book. So let it do its work in your life. And to turn your eyes above the sun to the one who has laid claim on you and given you the power to enjoy life. Pleasure will not do it for you. Relentless quest for wise moral living will not do it for you. Finding the ladder and the top of it and your meaning through work is not going to do it for you. It can only be found in Christ. Do you have a relationship with him? I'm going to tell you how you do that, by the way. It's so easy. It's so simple. Do you believe But not just believe like the demons believe and shudder, according to James. I mean, are you willing to trust the weight of your soul to the promises of Christ? That he's the one that put this miserable curse on you. Why? To punish you? No. To get you to the end of yourself so you'll turn to him and find life above the sun. And the very moment you cry out to him, I'm a sinner. You've driven me away from your presence. I'm east of Eden. I'm life under the sun is me, and I'm miserable. And the very moment you cry out to him and say, save me, forgive me, it's going to be in that precise nanosecond that he gives you a brand new heart with new capacities, new desires. He puts you into his family. He becomes your father. You become his child, and the Spirit of God puts a seal on you that says, I'm never going to let you go, and I'm going to teach you how to live under the sun with eyes above it and you have a life you will have a life that you never thought you could that's the promise of the gospel that's exactly what Solomon discovered and we're going to find it at the end of the journey stay with us in this series let's pray